Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. I just wanted to remind everyone that therapy can be an excellent resource for working through different issues that people face. I don't want to generalize this. Yes, there's a lot going on in, in the world, but there's also a lot going on in our individual worlds. And that can be really tough to navigate, especially when both sort of combine and you're feeling the pressure of it all. Though we do face so many similar struggles, everyone's path to healing is going to look entirely different. So no matter where you are on your mental health journey, you deserve better care than generalized advice cobbled together from Dr. Google. And that's why I believe in talking to a real mental health professional and it being so important. Talkspace has thousands of licensed therapists across dozens of specialties. So you can connect with someone that's trained for just what you need. Take care of your mental health on your time at your pace because we all really do have busy schedules. And Talkspace, well, it fits into yours. With 24-7 asynchronous messaging, you can talk about what's on your mind in the moment without waiting for an appointment. You'll have chat, video, or audio options for live sessions, so you'll get support on your own terms from any device. And your privacy is absolutely a priority. Talkspace has encryption and added security features to keep your conversations secure. Get the one-size-fits-one support you need with Talkspace. Sign up at Talkspace.com and get $100 off your first month with promo code PAPAYA. That's $100 off at Talkspace.com, promo code PAPAYA. Now let's get into today's show. Hi, friends, and welcome to the Papaya Podcast. I'm your hostess, trying her mostess, Sarah Nicole, and each week I'm going to be dishing out some sweetness mixed in with some seeds of wisdom or something like that. So get ready to get inspired, get candid, get real, because we are all in this digital space together. I'm excited. Today I just get to podcast with an Instagram friend. We've known each other for freaking ever. But what's so fun about having you on is that I, I I was just saying this to you before we started that I don't typically go and read everybody's backstory. I just like to jump in on the ride, in on the experience. And Jane Mattingly, you are somebody who is quite an experience to follow. You are such a gentle human in the way that you move through this world with honestly a world that's really harsh in so many different ways. But I followed you so much because you talk a lot about 
I mean, you are not just disabled, but you also talk about body image and eating disorders. And there's a lot that there is to learn for me. And then there's a lot that I just mirror myself in your experiences. But tell me how you came into this place of talking about, you know, recovery and self-love was this, like, where is the beginning of the story? Bring me back to before I hit the follow button. Yes. Oh my gosh. So I think I, yeah, I started recovery, loving care as a business and as a blog, right. When I was in the middle of getting my master's degree in clinical mental health counseling, I identify as fully recovered from my eating disorder. And I went to go and get my master's so I can work and help people within their recovery journeys and specialize in that. And I just noticed like a big gap within treatment and understanding of eating disorders. And this was like six years ago. So things have really progressed, but I started like mentoring and doing a blog. And then I started working as a therapist and things just kind of progressed. And I noticed again, like this gap within treatment. So I kind of created this curriculum surrounding coaching and being a part of someone's treatment team. And so since then, Recovery Loving Care as a brand has been, you know, about eating disorder recovery and body image. And then it's also kind of gone along the lines of my life to, you know, live all of that. And in the last four years has been a very tough time for me and my body and my health. I was super able-bodied up until about four years ago when I was diagnosed with some chronic illnesses. I ended up in brain surgery and have since had 12 brain and spine surgeries in the last what? four years. Yeah. You just recently had one as well. Yeah. I, I have another on Friday. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> So did you, when it comes to chronic illness, I have a mom who has a chronic illness and I, yeah, I remember being a kid of a parent who, you know, was chronically ill and I had the most beautiful childhood for sure, Mm -hmm. but it created a lot of awareness around these invisible diseases, right? Like these, this, I watched my mom, like she had us when she was 21 and 23. So she was very young. And right after having me developed a lot of issues with endometriosis, um, pain throughout her entire body, she was, ended up having a full hysterectomy at the age of 34, which I think back on that. And I like, it's a core memory for me watching my mom, like, you know, your person. I remember my dad just like scrambling on like, how do you make dinner? I remember getting Harvey's because he just like, and I was like, this is awesome. Like mom went to the hospital and now we get Harvey's. We had all these like really amazing childhood moments, but I watched my mom suffer through a lot of it and then ended up, you know, 34, she had that surgery later diagnosed with fibromyalgia, which I know never had heard that term before, had no freaking idea. And I watch her go in and out of what she would describe as a flare-up where her whole body just becomes in pain, right? And and I've never, I think why I love hearing stories about chronic illness is because it is so invisible. Also like mental health, it's very invisible. And yet we, you know, if somebody is walking around with a broken arm, everyone's rushing to take care mm-hmm. of them. So how did you realize that something more was going on? Like, where did you... Was it something sudden? Was it something that you just like, did it take a long time to start getting attention from doctors? Because that's the other part of it too. Oh yeah. I mean, the amount of medical trauma that is involved in this journey is in, in very significant. But for me, I have a genetic illness. So I was actually born with it. I just didn't oh, know. Whoa. Yeah. I have a condition called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. There's mm-hmm. 14 types of mutations. It's a connective tissue disorder. And it's also like a huge spectrum of how it presents. And so um, now that we look back, we're like, oh, that makes sense. I mean, I was 
dislocating things left and right. You know, like I was just like a very bendy child. Bendy. Um, Yeah, I was very bendy. But yeah, I was, it was four years ago and I was working five jobs because I was like really trying to be like an entrepreneur as a side hustle, but I was also a therapist and I was babysitting and nannying and also getting my master's. It was like kind of that typical 20 something who thinks that they're like invincible. Mm. Like I truly believed I was, I was like, I don't need sleep. I don't, even though I was in recovery, there still was a piece of me that was like hanging on to this, this idea that I could do it all and that I was different. And that I was the special one that, you know, could be the exception to the rule. And so I was going to like bar classes and spin classes. And that was a huge part of my recovery was movement. And I literally was driving home from one of my bar classes and I went blind. I like went blind. Yeah. I lost my sight. So I was like, and my head was in so much pain. I mean, it was like, my head was going to pop off my body. It felt like, so I went to the ER, they were like, ah, oh, nothing's wrong. So I had to go back to the ER like five different times. And it turned out I had this thing called intracranial hypertension, which is like when your brain thinks you have a brain tumor. So like it, your body thinks you have it. So it acts like you do. Yeah. And like, so anyways, I had to get brain surgery for that. And then I thought it was fine, but things declined quick and went to the Mayo Clinic and they diagnosed me with the genetic disorder, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And since then things have like rapidly progressed and it turned, I'm like kind of turned into this like wonder case for my neurosurgeon and stuff where it's like, oh my God, you're kind of like one of a kind, which is not something you want to hear from a doctor. Not not the time you want to be special. (laughs) Yeah. But it was, what was so weird about it was I, because of ableism, I never really understood disability. I never really understood any of that. I truly thought being disabled meant you were paralyzed and in a wheelchair. Like I did not get it. And so much of my coaching and mentorship and events that I would speak at would be like, you know, don't, you know, work out for what your body looks like, move your body for what you can do, or don't love your body for what it looks like, love your body for what it can do. And I truly believed that. And then I was like, well, fuck, what if my body stops doing and it did. Yeah. I think about this all the time because even with like healthy at every size and all stuff. And I'm like, but what about the people who aren't healthy? It's so like, you almost have to open your eyes to like, Mm -hmm. and it's so interesting with you because you have that intersection of both healing from, you know, eating disorder Mm -hmm. and being disabled. So you have this like, yes, I need to just be healthy. Healthy doesn't look like one thing. These are very common messages that we hear in eating disorder recovery, or, you know, like you just said, like moving your body for not what it looks like, but what it can do. So to suddenly have the loss of use of your body, that would just throw, that throws everything off course. It makes, it makes you choose your words very differently because even within like, you know, wear what you want and go to do what you want and go live your life isn't, also isn't always entirely accessible, right? Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's insane because in that like first year or two, I was fighting it so much. I was Mm. still, I mean, I'm I'm a workaholic. I'm a self-proclaimed workaholic. It's truly like I've turned a lot of my problems into like my purpose and my passion. And I I love growing my business. I love helping my clients. And (laughs) I was like burning myself out and I was getting so angry at my body. And so now it's like, I I look at it as like this perceived body betrayal. People call it body betrayal and chronic illness. I don't think it is body betrayal. So for right now, something that's happening, that's really devastating for me is my body's actually attacking all the metal in my body. So I have lots of metal. Why do you have so much? Is that, do you have metal because you're so bendy? I feel like we need to, (laughs) 
like, it's attacking the metal. I'm like, why is there metal there? (laughs) Backtrack. For years, my spine was so unstable. Actually, I have this thing called cervical instability. So my, my head was basically like almost dislocating from my spine. It was yeah, it's it, that's what? not what it is, but it kind of is if we're gonna explain it in women's turn. So it was like my head could go around like an owl, like uh, it was insane, and it was causing a lot of neurological problems. Your spine, is I can to, imagine, yeah, yeah, like yeah. your spinal cord isn't supposed to be tugged on like that. So I've had many surgeries. I'm very lucky to have a very good surgeon who works with my disease. One of like three in the world that's like in Charleston, South Carolina. It's very weird. So I've had lots of stabilization. So like I have lots of rods and plates and I have stents in my brain. So I have lots of metal and my body is now attacking the metal like it would a cancer. Oh my gosh. I mean, it thinks it's doing a really good job though. Like it's trying so hard for you. It's so hard. There was like a realization. I was just, cause now I'm uh, a wheelchair user. Just things are happening and they keep changing. And I was, I got into this moment even last week and I was like, why? And then I kind of looked back and I was like, I need to talk to my body. Like, and say, you've known what's going on. Like now I'm on mm-hmm. your page. Mm-hmm. Like now I'm on your page. I know you're trying so hard I will be here with you. Like you need this metal out. We're going to get it out. I hear you. But again, it's like this perception of betrayal, but it's not really betrayal. Mm, Yeah, exactly. I mean, everything that could ever truly go wrong in a body is rarely betrayal. It's the way of it. Like it's fighting, right? And I get the frustration though. It can be really difficult, especially when it is hard to get medically looked at for a lot of invisible things. I'll be honest. I just got that. This is like such a minor thing, but after like years of going through like disordered eating and eating disorders, not diagnosed, It was like afterwards, I was like, my body just doesn't feel right though. Is it ever going to feel right? Is it nothing ever feels good or great? And like movement is always very difficult. Like my anemia got really, really bad. And then I like went to, I finally switched to a like naturopath and was like working through testing my hormones and stuff. And it was a freaking thyroid issue. Things, things that I've like looked at for so long. And I was like, you know, it just takes like that whole thing. It's like my body was still balancing itself out from something that I did to my body. I, I did. I made a choice. No, but that's okay. Like, it is part of that that I'm like, now we're like trying to get in sync with it. And I feel like for you, yeah, like for you, and and there were so many times it did that. I lost feeling in my legs when I was in my eating disorder. And that was a huge wake up call for me. I think when you have fought so hard for what your body looks like, all of a sudden that part of you that's like, oh my gosh, I might not be able to walk. Like that is a very Wow. It's a very big moment, but for you, this, this really happened. It started going down that path to the mm-hmm. point that you no longer can do like this movement just for joy and all of these different things. How is there been, have you found peace in it or are you still kind of in the processing of it? Because mm-hmm. I'm six years out from my disordered eating and I feel like it's an everyday thing. Yeah, sure. It's an everyday thing. I'm still working through not doing the math in my head, still Mm -hmm. working through, I mean, 
my doctor told me to not work out so much. So I'm like having to go through like rectifying, Ah. like I'm safe and I'm okay. And that my body is like changing and that's okay. You know, I had a baby that's okay. But for you, these are, this is a, this is a pressure cooker situation. If we're going to be honest, like you went from being in recovery to like accepting your body, doing all these things to like, okay, I'm going to work through what my body looks like. And at the same time, what my body is doing. And it's doing a lot for me, but it's also a lot. There's a lot going on. Yeah. I think it's both. A lot of what I focus on is like, and that's really Mm. kind of saved me. I'm actually like, I started a non-for-profit called the and initiative because of this, because I think, I know you talk about this a lot, you know, like being a mom and, and I think that's the one thing that gets me through is knowing that I can be sick. I can, my body can like literally be declining and I can be helping people. I can be inspiring others. I can be training professionals. You know, I can have, I have like my mobility aids that I'm very privileged to have to be able Mm -hmm. to make my life bigger. I have my mobility service dog, you know, like I'm very privileged in that. And so finding my gratitudes, not toxic gratitude, but like finding my gratitudes has truly been what's helped me go. But I mean, I, I've had dark moments. I mean, even in the last few months, like where I'm like, I can't do this. This is too much. This is too much for one person to handle. And then the next day I'm like, okay, today I choose gratitude. And I think it's just like a daily thing, but I will say like, I tell my clients this all the time. Eating disorder recovery is what made me resilient to deal with this shit. I mean, I truly, I don't know if I could have gotten through these four years if I hadn't done the work in my recovery. I mean, like literally I was awake during brain surgeries and that was easier than recovery. Like they're doing the work on your brain, not you. You know what I mean? That's so true. Yeah. Yeah. Because when you're, I don't think people realize how, I mean, I think about it all the time because there's other forms of addiction as well. Let's take alcohol. That's an easy one. Mm -hmm. Avoiding it is the answer. It's also like dealing with your emotions. I don't want to assume what it's totally like, but you know, it is not, it's both the inner battle and the battle of like, you know, being around it can be difficult. But when it comes to eating disorders, it's like you're pressured to interact with it so much. So every hour, every minute of the day is truly part of it until it just gets a little bit easier and a little bit easier. But I don't think it, I think a lot of times, like when you said that you were fully recovered, do you still struggle with food or do you feel like you're recovered in the sense that you have managed to build the tools up enough to deal with it? I feel that I don't struggle with food anymore. I don't. I do struggle with body image still. I don't think anyone, I, I don't think I've ever met anyone who's immune to that. Uh, and my body has changed so much, not just in ability within my journey the past four years, but due to inflammation, like has like seriously changed. So that's, but I don't struggle with food anymore. I truly don't. Now, I also say like, I had a lot of privilege within my recovery. I really did. I mean, I didn't have significant traumas. I had access to care. I like was incredibly motivated in my recovery because I was able to be motivated at that Mm -hmm. time. You know, like I am not one of those people that says like, because I can do it, you can do it too. I I don't believe that sentiment. But because of the hard work I did, like that was truly harder work than being awake during a brain surgery. I will forever stand by it. I recently measured the success of my day 
based on my hydro jug. I'm not even kidding you. I felt so proud that I got through all of my hydration goals in a day. And and I know that sounds so simple, but if you know me and follow me on the gram, you know that I love to give myself gold stars for general things that feel like they should be so simple, but actually add up a lot to our overall wellness. And that for me is hydration because I do struggle with drinking water and staying on top of it. But HydroJug kind of reels me in with these beautiful water bottles that hold half a gallon of water so you can hydrate more, refill less. They have a leak-proof seal so your water stays in the bottle, off your clothes, with a wide mouth opening, making it easy to add ice because for me it has to be ice cold or fruit if you're someone like me as well that doesn't love plain water. And it also has this really amazing integrated handle that makes it super easy to carry and drink from. All of HydroJugs are BPA-free because sustainability is so important. HydroJug also offers these really cute sleeves. Really, really, really cute. I just got like a sparkly pink one and it makes it super easy to carry your HydroJug. They have these extra pockets in them as well that carry all of your essentials like your phone, your keys, chapstick, and more. I love my HydroJug. I have an entire shelf in our house because we as a family love HydroJug so much as well. Everyone has their own colors and combinations with their sleeves that they love and use. Whether my daughter's taking it to cheer class or whether my son's taking it to school or for me from office to office to bedroom to wherever I want to take it. And I just encourage you to check them out because HydroJug is the one. Get your HydroJug at thehydrojug.com and use my discount code papaya to get 10% off your order today. HydroJugs are game changers for anyone on the go or just looking to up their hydration like I am. Again, use code papaya at thehydrojug.com to get 10% off today and start hydrating. Let's get back to the show. Hi guys, welcome to Digging Deep. I'm Dr. Sasha Shokrin, the relational doctor, but more importantly, a human just like you with a story that continues to unfold. Each of our lives is compiled of stories, and my job is to help you detangle those stories. As a psychologist, I'm here to tell you that growth is never linear and that life is full of highs, lows, and everything that exists in between. My plan is to dig deeper into the stories that will inspire us, move us and remind us that we're never really alone. Don't miss a new episode of Digging Deep every Monday, anywhere you listen to podcasts. That's a big statement. And and talk to me a little bit through you know, as you're kind of learning to love your body and then, you know, the loss of a a lot of its ability, grief is a big part of it. And I think that so many of us struggle with different spectrums of grief. Sometimes it's basically the change of what it looks like, or it can be a, I dealt with a lot of it during pregnancy because that was the, one of the first times I've been put on a a different level of inability because of a condition I wasn't able to do much. I was put on rest, mentally was struggling. It's, things can change very, very quickly. And there's a lot of toxic positivity, I'm going to call it. And I love that I'm having this conversation with you because I love that you're not somebody who's just like, well, at least you're not, you know, a wheelchair user. At least you're not that because we all definitely like there is a sliding scale and we do need to be aware of how this all happens. However, Mm -hmm. coming into change with your body in any capacity is a really, really difficult thing for so many people and for so many different reasons. Talk me through your own journey with grief and, you know, your gratitude. 
At first, I mean, you bring up such a good point of like that comparative suffering because that was me. Yeah. Pain I, Olympics. I saw somebody call it the pain Olympics yes. and like, and oh, I was I like, oh, wow. Yeah. 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 I just, I, that was the one thing yeah. I, I listened to a podcast and there was a woman who was struggling with chronic cluster headaches and she's like, it still hurts when you stub your toe. So like yes. we can't be in the pain Olympics with each other because it still hurt you when you stubbed your toe and it still hurts when I've got this going on. And ever since I've always been like, it's okay. You don't have to be hurt. You don't have to be dead on the sidewalk to be like, well, at least it's not like, you know what I mean? There's no hierarchy to suffering. I mean, there really isn't, you know, and I do understand, like, we have to be aware of those things, but I was that way. I at least did, like, I always said, well, at least, at least I was constantly gaslighting myself that I, I think also because of how I dealt with it, I was able to like self-preserve. I kind of dissociated from it. I mean, I still kind of do, you know, like Mm. Julia, my friend Fit Fat and all that, she always laughs because like, there'll be times where we'll be like running a class or something and be like, Hey guys, I'm getting brain surgery next week. And she's like, you can't just like passively say that shit. I'm like, I know, <laughs> but it's just part, it's part of my it's life. Part right? of life. Personalized it. So a big piece of the grief, a big piece of the grief has been being in my body and like allowing it to be dysfunctional. And mm. I mean, I even get, I get emotional thinking about it because it's heartbreaking that, you know, she, my body has been working so hard and I just push her. I I ignore, I dissociate. And I think we all do that, but body grief is, I think every single human, every single being experiences some level of grief within their bodies. For me right now, it's just the grief of having really no control over what's happening. Part of my treatment after these surgeries is a cancer drug and it's terrifying. And I will continue to choose joy when I can. But I think Brene Brown says like, at least is like when you, if you start a sentence with at least there's no empathy behind it, like there's truly no statement. So I try to notice that in myself because I am so ableist towards myself. I gaslight myself constantly and I just have to be aware of that and how I talk to my body. That's super fair. And I also have to ask this, this is a bit of a spicy one, but I think it's, I think we're a great duo to talk about it because, you know, in the last few years, as body image stuff has become mainstream, it's become smaller and smaller and smaller in body size. And, you know, it's gone from like people who were in disabled bodies or in fat bodies, you know, fighting for the rights to, you know, even people like me who was like, I'm just struggling to like accept, you know, my stomach or we've seen people, you know, and then it went to like just general bloat, like what it looks like to eat a meal. And there's like two sides of this. Well, first of all, I want to ask how that whole thing, how you've processed it, because I know that for me, it's been a big process as well. But also on the other side of it, how much it really exemplifies the fact that body grief really will come after everybody and body image really does come after everybody. How do we really get into a place of holding space for people who are struggling with their bloat? I remember being a kid. Do you remember like sitting down on the grass and being worried about like how big your butt print was on the grass when you stood up? Like we were children and we've done this. So, or like what, it, what your thighs look like when you sat down and they go wide and you'd like hold your thighs up on the bus. So it wouldn't do that. We have been doing this to ourselves our entire lives, but you know, you look at that now and you're like, that's so silly. Like that was so silly. But 
also, that's exactly where I was at that time when I was like 11 or 12, or that is where people are in their 30s or in their 20s or any place of it. As somebody who has also gone through eating disorder recovery like yourself, you know, like these little things like what your body looks like after a meal are big, big, big moments, but it really has caused a lot of discord within body image and self-love movements because it does feel like that at least type of mentality. But I think there is space to be held. And I and I would just love your input on how we can be better about moving through something that has become mainstream. It's become cool. And mm-hmm. it's also causing a lot of issues for people who are struggling much in a much greater way, especially in uh, ableist society or a fat phobic society with, you know, also having to deal with these issues. Gosh, I love this question so much. Um, it's a big one though, right? It's a, a hard, one. it's because I see it from both angles and that I experienced it, but I also work with clients who are of all different body, all different backgrounds, all different body types, and their eating disorders present in incredibly different ways. And there is so much validity to the per- the fact that eating disorders are the second number two mental illness that leads like the highest immortality. I'm saying that wrong. So like opioid addiction is number one. Yeah. And then eating disorders number two, like that needs to be talked about. And it that does. people who are experiencing eating disorders are seriously suffering, even if they're in incredibly small bodies, mental illness, it's a physical illness, it's a socioeconomic illness. And I feel that the body positive movement is so amazing. And that started again, like you said, with marginalized bodies and it has been co-opted by thin white women. And I don't think that they're the same thing. I I don't, I try not use body positivity. I was like, I'll talk about self-love till the cows come home, but that doesn't look like body positivity. No, they're very different. They're very different. And so I think it can be both where we can allow, you know, this space to be social justice warriors and to learn and for lack of a better term, become quote unquote woke to all of this. Right. And we can have compassion for the fact that people in smaller bodies can really be suffering in their bodies and having a really hard time. I don't think it needs to be this thing where we're taking down another person. I mean, it's just, it's become ridiculous. And I've, I've seen it too, where people in bigger bodies and people in smaller bodies are coming to session and like, having these conversations saying things like, I feel like I can't talk about this here because I don't, I don't want you to think I'm a bad person. Mm. Mind you, like this hour is for them and their mental health, but they're so concerned about upsetting others. And I don't feel that we can truly help fat phobia and ableism and diet culture until we heal our own shit. Yeah. We, We heal our own shit first. And so I do think there's space for both and it has to be and, but it is a really spicy topic. I've never talked about this really because I've never wanted to be, I don't want to be thought of as someone who's saying like, let's feel bad for skinny white women, you know? Cause that's no. not what I But I also think that like when I look at like my first rise out of like uh, in attention and following out of, you know, being a weight loss account a lot of it was from sharing very normal stuff that just wasn't normally seen. And I do hope, I do, my hope, because this has been my journey, is that that was a stepping stone. That was a first step. But I hope that in that awareness and as I become more aware and as I share more, that we start to do a little bit more. Like what comes after the thin white woman who is struggling in her body? And let's go to somebody who is, you know, in a marginalized body for this sense. Or you start to notice like, 
I was just in LA and there was no clothes in the stores displayed more than a size six. And I was like, well, I'm a size, I'm a size 12 right now. And I haven't been a size 12. I haven't been double digit numbers since my recovery began. So, and I actually felt very good, but I was very aware. Right. But take me back four years ago when that happened, I would immediately made it a me issue. So there is these like stepping stones into things. And then I have to now go into stores and recognize when there isn't above a size 12 in the store. Yeah. Works for me, but I need you. Your lens becomes bigger and bigger, bigger. But at the beginning, it's so small because that's the only experiences you've had so far. That's as far as you've gotten. And so I really like, as much as I sometimes, I'll be honest, I struggle by watching, you know, women in really small bodies position themselves to look bigger or to, to create roles and talk about body acceptance when I'm like, try having a belly that like literally folds over onto itself or like, like, you know what I mean? There's like, but then I'm, I could have somebody look at me and like, try having a body that this, and I, and I have to go through it in my own head to be able to like come out of it. I just mute them. I just mute them or I don't follow them. And I try and be better. Or I try and acknowledge that their journey is in this one place and with this one lens. And Mm -hmm. I have, I hold so much hope that we're we're all learning together, right? Like even within body positive, I feel like ableism didn't become a huge part of the conversation until two years ago. Like honest to goodness, not until two years ago, we were still having body image conversations. And it was very much like we talked about where it's like, not about what you look like. It's what your body can do. Even one of my most favorite quotes, like your body is an instrument, not an ornament. And I, I love that one so much, but it, you, for someone like you, you're like, it's my instrument that is like out of tune. (laughs) It needs some tuning, you know, like we're working on it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Those strings are coming off the violin on this one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do, I feel like it all comes down to like gatekeeping of bodies. I, I, it's like we're gatekeeping this idea of what like the experience of a body is. And I think you're right in that, like <laughs> it can get really annoying, like to see people being like, this is really hard. That's a me problem. Usually that's yeah. like, you because if I see someone and I'm in a really bad head space and I just got, you know, get out of surgery or treatment and I see someone complaining about their headache, that's a me problem. Yeah. If I'm concerned by that, you know, yeah. I do think that all bodies, like truly all bodies need to share their story and it can be, and, but I do think like a lot of what's happening is this gatekeeping of bodies, mm. um, which I just do not, I do not love. Yeah. I don't either. And I also am struggling with the word like inclusivity. Cause I'm like, unless it means all stop using it. We can't, we can't say all bodies. We can't say inclusivity. And what are we wanting to be inclusive about? Are we wanting to be inclusive into the experience of a thin white woman or are we wanting to expand it? So like diversification and like work to, there's so many new language words that sometimes I'm like, inclusivity is oftentimes a goal, but you can't say it until it truly includes everybody in very diverse experiences and very different bodies. And the more you know, you just become aware of things like that, right? Like there's diversity inclusion are very, very big things. And I was in a anti-racism class with Salam Debs and she said, I try and not use that because I don't want the language to be around how to make black folks have the white experience. I want black folks to have a black experience. And I was like, whoa, I don't want to misquote her. She probably said something totally different, but something along those lines. And I was like, very like, whoa, we do that in the body space though, too. We do it all the time. We're like, Yes, look at all this inclusive sizing. It goes up to a 3X and and people are like, wait, actually, I'm a 4X, so that's not inclusive. And you're like, 
damn, you're so right. But that's why like getting it wrong in this, it's not about like, you're right. It's not about gatekeeping. It's not about silencing. It's more about being willing in your journey of learning about body image, learning about like recovery, learning about ableism and fat phobia to also be willing to be wrong along the way and be corrected. Because I think that's like, it's a very, whenever somebody corrects me, I also feel like they trust me to be corrected. Do you know what I mean? Like they felt, they felt that I was somebody who they could share that they yes. could, because I move through a lot of spaces and I'm like, I don't want to be the person to say it, but we're all thinking it. And and yes. when somebody actually takes that moment or to call it in, call it out, whatever it is, and it's brought in a way that is like respectful and loving it, you know, like, and I'm so grateful for the opportunity to learn. Have you kind of, have you kind of gone through this process with yourself and knowing like you mm-hmm. said you were very ableist towards yourself. Has there been like a big awakening or any type of grief along the line of how you used to speak to yourself to how you speak to yourself now, or kind of like through that same processing of, you know, we talk about the and a lot, but like, yeah. I really miss being thin. I really miss being able body, but also I'm trying to reach this, this place now. How has that part been for you? Or the fact that you've gotten things wrong or were incredibly ableist and now are experiencing ableism. Yes. There's so much there. My gosh, they're so layered. And I really appreciate that question because it's something that I, again, because I compartmentalize it all, it's, it's nice to like feel grounded in it sometimes. For, for instance, one thing that comes up a lot is I got married to my husband in April and that was a big thing for me to show up disabled yeah. You, in, it was like, you had your, you had a walker at the time in your yeah. wedding photos. And it was, yes. oh, like it was hard. I mean, it was really hard because yeah. I became severely disabled dirt, like right before COVID began. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I, I guess so. Yeah. I hadn't seen like family and friends. I used to be a dancer. Like I was a very good dancer competitively throughout childhood. I was always very athletic you know, and so I, and my body had majorly changed in, since I'd seen people. And I was like, you know, oh my God, like I've been living this little life here in my house, in my backyard and with my dogs and my husband, my, you know, my soon to be husband. And it felt really fraudulent. And like, you know, I never want to put this out into the universe of not being disabled enough or sick enough, you know, but I do think I was experiencing that. I think I was like, well, I don't need this, you know, but again, like I need, I needed it. Like I needed to walk. That was a big thing for me. And like kind of showing up there. I even found myself last week being fitted for a wheelchair. And I literally have started a non-for-profit called the and initiative where I like gift people mobility aids. And I still oh my God. found myself asking the lady, the amazing lady who was fitting me for a wheelchair I asked her for permission. I said, do I really need a wheelchair? And I like kind of blocked myself, but I I needed that permission because of my internalized ableism, because I don't want it. That's the thing is I, I think a big part of this acceptance thing is like, I don't have to like it. My therapist told me that she's like, you can have radical acceptance and still like hate it. And I felt, well, as a disability advocate, like, am I allowed to hate it? 
Am I allowed to hate that I have to be in a wheelchair? Am I allowed to hate, you know, and I think I am. I think I am allowed to hate that. And I think you're allowed to do whatever the hell you want, because I think that the second we stop somebody from whatever they need to do to process or just be like, just be grateful, just be this, just be anything. I think it immediately puts you into a shame category and shame does shit all for anybody. It doesn't work. It doesn't help. So like sometimes, especially in a trusted space to be like, I had it this week. I I wrote myself a little note about it yesterday because I've worked so fucking hard to tell people to show up in their bodies, to do whatever they need to, to, you know, live that life. And then I stood at the window of my hotel and I watched women in very thin bodies at the pool. And my friend was like, do you want to go down? And I was like, no, <laughs> like, uh, no, thank you. And then yeah. afterwards I was like, why were there no, like, are there just no women in LA that look like me? Or is there, and I'm like a size 12. This is ridiculous. And then afterwards I was like, I wonder if we're all just standing at the window. Are we all just like waiting? Are we all just like wishing and witnessing other people and feeling those scars of being a child at a pool party where your body was oh, naturally picked apart? That right? Like you, it just brings back these moments, but I needed to have that moment of, of feeling like shit about myself. And I think the second that we or feeling like shit about a situation or feeling insecure in our bodies, like the point of all of this is not to just have the feelings and carry the feelings all the time, but to learn and to process and to do right. And, and I think that I love that you're like, I don't love that I have to be in a wheelchair instead of being like, I don't know, like I'm, I'm, yeah, you're going to be amazing and beautiful and everything that you ever were before in a wheelchair. And it's okay that it's a shitty feeling. It is. The world has become smaller. Like it's not the same. And the wheelchair does allow me to live a bigger life, you know, and it's hard. Me and my husband used to live in Jackson, Wyoming. We went for hikes and we skied and he's still this like very athletic human. And here I am like, See you later. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Let's talk about that for a second because when it comes to, I've seen a lot of people before talk openly about being disabled and being in relationships and people often like, they get really sympathetic for the partner. They're a little like, are you, do you know what you're signing up for? Like, are you aware? Like I saw this one woman who used the wheelchair and she had a baby and they were like, do you think it was fair to your husband that you had a baby because he has to do double the work because you can't. And it just, it, it made me so aware how much relationships become also in a pressure cooker, right? Talk to me about being with somebody when you were abled body into being in a disabled body and what that did to your relationship and what you've learned. Man, thank God for marriage therapy and couples therapy. (laughs) Yeah. Because there has to be room for like the grief of what could have been. Yeah. Yeah. We both need to grieve, but you know, so here's the thing is I, he is amazing. Sean is so wonderful and has truly adapted with me. He also went with me through eating disorder recovery. Yeah. So like he's been on the road. It's been a rocky road. And, you know, he went from like really awesome trips and like living this awesome life in Charleston, South Carolina on the beach to, you know, and we met actually in Greece. Like we, we had this like really cool life mm-hmm. and then like sleeping on hospital floors and traveling to Mayo clinic. And it's, a huge shift. And for me, I really actually, Alicia, um, your friend posted this thing about, yeah, Yeah. about how she's projected her beliefs of her body onto her partner, how she used to do that. Yeah. I I think a lot of us do. It's the reason that we're like, don't get on top in the bedroom. A lot of times we were like, I don't want him to see this. And even though that feels good. 
I mean, yeah, we do it all the time. I was like, ding, ding, ding. Like, that's exactly what I've been doing with being sick. You know, sweet Sean is just like, I love you. I'm here for you. This is, this has changed. This is hard, but like, I keep projecting that onto him being like, this isn't good for him. He's going to leave me. I mean, 20% Mm -hmm. I saw today actually with chronic illnesses that when a spouse is sick and it's a female, the male 20% of the time leaves. And it, I get that because it's so hard. People are always saying, oh my God, you're so lucky to have him. You're so lucky to have Sean sit by you. It must've been so hard. You know, this is going to be so hard for him. And it feels like a burden. That's yeah. when like, it's like burdensome feeling. And so for us, it's been figuring out like his, he needs to play soccer. He needs his guy time. He needs to like go and do that. And then we have just really figured out what this new life is for us. You know, like we're building, we're building ramps and we're making our backyard like a little sanctuary. And like, there's just tiny little things that we have to do to kind of reevaluate what life is going to look like, but it is really sad. I mean, yeah. I read this book once where it was a fictional story, but it woke me up to to this as well because I believe that stat must be real. And I think it's less aesthetic than people would expect it to be because in the book that I was reading, her husband was extremely athletic and such a life of the party type of person and had a ski accident and became paralyzed and slowly over time became angry, resentful, and abusive towards her to the point that it was no longer a relationship. It was like a servanthood, right? To this person who wasn't the person that they got married to. And I think in order for, and everyone's about, like if you became bitter and resentful, I I also think that's fair. But I love that for you, I, I would assume, or I would like to think that a big part of your relationship thriving, especially like getting married in a disabled body and moving forward and presenting that was the work that you did yourself, right? It was the work to remain somebody who allows grief, but also allows growth and gratitude and also allowing a partner to share those same experiences, right? Like, cause I think, I think we do become very apologetic when we change. We become very apologetic when we're not wow. the person that somebody married, right? Like if you if you think about yes. it and if yes. something were to happen to me, I mean, so many people go through different experiences and then you hear of them breaking up and you immediately go, oh, it's because they look different or it's because of that. And I, But I also think there's just, it's a really hard blow. There's a reason that couples rarely survive the death of a child. You change. There is so much, when grief doesn't just become a processing tool, but becomes your way of living. I can only imagine how difficult that is to keep a relationship alive when that already is a lot of work. And I think there needs to be like within that stat of like 20% uh, leaving also a lot of room for, we don't know what that looks like in that relationship. And we don't know how difficult that was and removing that it might, I think it's a, I think it's a very ableist assumption that we automatically, I myself would go to it being an aesthetic thing or it being the things you can't do. Ah, that's so interesting. And I I would love to know. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. I would too. I mean, I think, I think you're completely right. I mean, I, I do think a lot of the, the reasons why Sean and I have continued to not just survive this, but start to thrive is because we've chosen joy even in like the really, really, really hard parts. I've chosen a lot of joy. One thing, and I don't want to speak for him, but one thing that we have been navigating is, you know, men usually are fixers. 
And so he has this idea that like, okay, this will fix her, this will get better, you know? And so sometimes that's been hard to like navigate acceptance versus letting go because I think, you know, men general, this is a generalization, but he falls into this where it's like, acceptance means that you're just letting go. And that's an ableist belief, right? But I also get it. And so we've had to like really navigate that and work through that. And it's been really freeing, but it's not rainbows and butterflies. I mean, it's hard. Yeah. And I think like I've, I've witnessed, I'm just going to say a family couple in my life that, you know, when the one, the woman was struggling mentally with some trauma of her past, the male counterpart said to her, you know, when are you, when are you going to get over it? Like, when are you just going to be better? And, and that was a sheer frustration, right? Like 30 years into something, there's so much frustration because I think men oftentimes generalization for sure are fixers. We do want it to just be better and, and make it okay. And it's very hard sometimes where you're like, there is nothing you can do to make it better, but I just need you to listen. I need you to be here. And that is so enough. And maybe it roots from them wanting to be enough, wanting to be that person that can come in and make it all better, owning and almost grieving over not being able to, right? Not being able to have that role, not being able to be that hero and just being that partner. One of the best things I saw happen in Disney movies, because we do kind of live out wanting these fairy tales, is in Frozen 2 when Anna... um, she goes to go do something and she's going into a rescue mission and her partner comes up beside her. And instead of him taking over the mission, he just says to her, what can I do to help? And that that line and that moment in a movie was such a powerful spot because it was like, that's what we need. Like a lot of times that's what we need is not just just having someone beside us, like be with me, like have this moment with me, understand you're not going to be able to do this for me. You can't fix this for me, but just be here. What can you do to help? What can I do to help? And I think that uh, especially as, you know, friends with people in all different types of bodies with chronic illness or disability, there is that bit of like, I just want to make it better, but it is just wanting to actually show up and be like, what can I do to help? Like, how can I be there for you? I think my parents have experienced that as well. Is this like back they're up in Chicago where I grew up and just like this feeling of, I want to fix it. I want to, you know, I'm, I'm not a parent. So I, I can only assume how it feels to have someone, you know, like a child experience these things, but it's almost like they do this, this question of like, how are you today? How do you feel is really a lot of pressure because I don't, you know, that Sean now doesn't ask this question. Like, Hey, yeah. how are you feeling? Cause I don't want to gauge my worthiness or happiness by how I'm feeling. And I know that's what other people are doing. Like, okay, is she okay today? It's like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to fall into that trap. But I also mm-hmm. understand that like, my dad and my mom want me to feel good. So I do think there's that piece too, where it's just like, that's their way of coping and self-preserving. Oh, it's a hundred percent fear-based as well, because I'm a parent of, of a child who has mental health conditions and the how are you doing question and how are you feeling is such a loaded because she will immediately go into protection of me. I won't cry. I'm not going to cry. But you know what I mean? She can never answer. Honestly, she can't because she knows it hurts me too. And that's why we need people outside of our personal care. Because if she says she's not okay, like I can't, I can't fix her. Like I, I can support, but you can't fix. And so it is a it is a difficult role, I think, especially as a parent or a partner to witness something 
and you just want to make it better and you you can't and there's so much fear that lives inside of you because you're like what if i i i had um i podcasted with this woman sadly she passed away but i talked with her after her diagnosis of being terminal and she said how hard it was because she had to go through it and she had to also have her parents go through it like and her family go through it right like they also had to grieve and she had to witness being the reason they were that's a hard thing. When you ask somebody what they're feeling, a lot of times they're going to lie to you because it's easier than to create oh, more stress. I, I always lie. I, I do. And thank you for sharing that with me because I do think one of, one of the things that I think is maybe an extreme statement to make, but I do believe it. I feel that this journey has been harder for my loved ones, my sisters, my parents, and my husband than it has for me. I really do because they can't, do anything. And they just watch me kind of, you know, decline and I, they truly can't do it. My mom's a nurse. And so like, she's also like very Too aware. <laughs> yeah. And my dad is the dad of all girls. He's like, just like, just a lover and I Sean's a fixer. And so I think it's really, I think it's just all of them suffering. And for me, you know, Sean, we try to make him not my caretaker. I mean, he's my husband and he does care for me, but he's not my caretaker. And we really try to make that divide, you know, like I always joke, like my service doc, he like literally opens doors for me and gets my meds and does everything yeah. for me. Oh my He's God. My I love that. <laughs> you know what though? Those are important. Would you say it's an important conversation to have before anything might happen? Because Shane and I have talked about it. Like what would happen? And we've made plans in place because you realize how fragile we are as people oh, so and fragile. as bodies. And I think after the pregnancy became very aware of like w- how quickly your world can get rocked in very new ways. And we had to have that conversation of around the fact that I never want him to be my caretaker and he doesn't want that either. So we had to financially plan and like insurance plan for like what that would look like if it something were to happen because our wishes are to not have, where other people might be like, I want to be your caregiver. Will you allow me to do that? Will you allow me to be that person where we just have this, we very much don't want the other person to have to do that. It was, it's because we're, I'm, to be honest, I won't ask him for help because I will carry too much guilt and I won't do it. So I would, I would rather be like, no, I need to have somebody that I know I will ask for help from just straight up. Yeah. I think that those are really important conversations to have. I wish we were, we had the wherewithal to have those conversations. I mean, I mean, you were dating. Could you imagine being like, excuse me, boyfriend, please (laughs) sit down. If we were to get married and if we were this, and if this happened, what is our plan? And are we ready to financially put away for that or like have insurance for that? Or like, no, that's like, (laughs) that's not a relationship killer, but it is a very, that's a very hefty thing. I mean, I think of Chandler and friends when he's like, you would see like a Chandler shaped door through that Chandler shaped hole through that door. Like that would have been shot. I know it would have. Yeah. Yeah. It is like a lot to carry. That's a lot. Yeah. like, wait, what? But it is true. We are, I think that's one thing diet culture and ableism are so bad is that it's like this promise that the human body, like we can micromanage our biology, but we're so fucking fragile and it is real. And I don't want Sean to be my caretaker during COVID. It kind of like, I do think came upon him a little bit more because of restrictions and things, but I really want to live a big life with him. And that makes like that that does change our future planning, to be honest, but we want to live our best life. Like we have to make those sacrifices. And I've learned to say, I need help for Mm. like for friends and, you know, caretakers. I mean, like I want to care.com. I was like, Oh my God, this is weird. But 
I, we just have to make those sacrifices. Ugh. Well, I got to thank you so much. I We got into a lot today. Yeah. <laughs> oh my oh. gosh, that was a journey. Okay, we didn't even get into like truly your work. but So I would love everyone to kind of dive into you on their, mm-hmm. like after this, because there's so much that you have to offer and there's so mm-hmm. much you do and talk about, but where can everyone find you and where can they kind of get involved? Um, Recovery Love and Care on Instagram, Twitter, um, LinkedIn, recoveryloveandcare.com. And then if you want to get involved or learn more about the and initiative, or if you need like any mobility aids, you can email the and initiative at gmail.com. And if you're looking for any body image work, that's recoveryloveandcare at gmail.com. Amazing. Thank you so, so much. It's been such a delight to sit and chat with you and I can't wait for this episode to come out. So for everyone listening, I'm going to have everything in the show notes for you, of course, and we'll see you next week. Before we wrap today's show, I just want to remind everybody, I have an app. Did you know that? Did you know I have an app? And it is a photo and video app. We worked for years into building this. And now you can join over 200,000 of the Papaya community by downloading my free app, Pink Papaya, on iOS. While so many apps focus on changing your appearance, Pink Papaya is all about celebrating yourself for exactly who you are, but still expressing your creativity with nearly 50 free filters and tools. You can also find us on social and share your edits at Pink Papaya app on the gram. Come and follow me on Instagram and you can actually go into my highlights where I have app tips and you'll see so many different tutorials on how to use the app. But to be honest, it's so user-friendly. I wanted this to be the app that helped anybody have amazing photos, no matter who you were and where, how much you had to offer in terms of your skills with photography and editing. It's meant and designed to be so easy to use and to celebrate you exactly as you are while you tell your story. So go check it out in the app store. It's called Pink Papaya and you can check us out on the gram at Pink Papaya app. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next week. Well, friends, thank you so much for tuning in and listening to today's episode. For more information on this episode, check out the show notes or find us on Instagram at the Papaya Podcast. And if you loved what you just listened to or know somebody who would, please share it. Simply screenshot today's episode in the podcast app and share it to your Instagram stories. And don't forget to tag us. Last but not least, if you'd like to lend your personal support to the podcast, take a moment and leave a review on iTunes. We would be oh so grateful. Tune in next week for a fresh new episode of the Papaya Podcast, and we'll see you then.